So like I mentioned earlier, Paul has established in chapter three, this unique accounting system, right? By which he determines the worth of everything. And so when we compare our earthly ambitions, our earthly achievements to the surpassing value of knowing Christ, then it's easy for us to place those ambitions, those accolades in the right perspective. And, and essentially what Paul did by, by, by developing the system was to show us that there is so much more to look forward to in Christ. Um, there is much to gain in Christ. Like we've seen, it's, it's, a, it's a personal knowledge that I may know him. It's a powerful knowledge, um, the power of his resurrection. And it's also a sometimes painful, painful experience as well, and the fellowship of his sufferings. But the fact that it's personal and powerful and painful doesn't change, affect the fact that the experience of knowing Christ overflows with joy and hope. And that's why we find Paul rejoicing throughout this book. Um, so we see that even those experiences in Christ that are not very palatable to our human senses, they are worth experiencing because of him. And those experiences can contribute to the advancement of the kingdom. So in chapter four that we now come to, Paul concludes the letter by then admonishing or imploring the Philippians to to take full advantage, right, of the blessings that exist in knowing Christ. Like it's in Philippians chapter four that he actually takes his time to break down some of those blessings. And we're going to see the richness of them. And so he's, he, if, if he's worried or concerned, his concern for them is that they don't miss out on this richness um, because there is so much to gain. And I think the particular topic he's dealing with He's dealing with a few things in Philippians 4, but one of them is unity, but the primary one is anxiety as well, which is the fourth and final thief of joy that Paul highlights in this book. So we can read from verse 1 to verse 3 to get started. Okay, Philippians chapter 4 from verse 1. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Edroda, Ewodia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow, fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Thank you, Stephanie. So right off the bat in verse one, Paul says, my beloved and long for my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord. You know, in chapter three, Paul had used the imagery of an athlete, right? And it's, it was a bit difficult to discern what particular sport he had in mind, but the imagery of pressing on towards the goal, towards the mark of the high calling, that's the imagery of athletics. And now he tells us the secret to running the Christian race successfully. The, the secret to running successfully is to learn how to stand fast. It might interest us to know that um, the first weapon that we have in our arsenal against the enemy in, in spiritual warfare, the first weapon is not so much our ability to fight, our ability to do anything, but it's our ability to stand. First of all, to stand in alignment with God, which is our first defense against the enemy. And secondly, to stand in consistency with God, 
which is what enables us internally to actually know him because without consistency, we cannot know God since God is a spirit. And we will need to develop patterns through consistency that will enable us to know that, okay, this is God and this is not God. So the person who is not consistent cannot know God, right? Um, and to open it up for us already at this point, what does it mean to stand fast in the Lord? So if this is a secret, right, of, if this is the secret of warfare, if this is the secret of um, a sustained Christian vitality, a sustained and a vital Christian experience, in your experience, in your understanding, what does it mean? How, what does it look like to stand fast in the Lord? Hmm. I think, I don't know, but I think to stand fast is just like to persevere, just mm -hmm. to keep, you know, doing what you've been doing. I think there's one verse in the Bible that says, the way you, do you receive Christ, I think, continuing. Exactly. I can't remember the verse, but yeah, I think it just means continue to do what you've been doing. Exactly. I like the word you used earlier, which is to persevere, right? Um, it's just a question, what do we persevere in? And like we saw in Philippians chapter one, what Paul, the first thing Paul was rejoicing with his fellow with these believers in Philippi about was their fellowship in the gospel. So the way to stand fast in Christ is to persevere in fellowship with Christ, despite the odds. And we saw that fellowship always entails the idea of partnership and of friendship and and friendship has the idea of intimacy. And that in, in the gospel, God actually invites us into a partnership. And so there is something that we can bring to the table, even though our salvation was procured fully by God, but there is the current activity of the Holy Spirit within us through which God hopes to bring us to maturity and to perform his counsel for our lives. And when Paul says, stand fast in the Lord, he's saying, I want you to persevere in fellowship, right? despite the odds. So if you wake up and it's not a very good day, just still call on Jesus. Persevere in fellowship because based on the accounting system we saw in Philippians chapter three, there's actually way much more to lose without Christ um, than there is to lose you know, physically. So there's no amount of physical loss that when you wait against the, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ can, can trump or overcome that worth. So Paul says, hold on, you know, he's basically saying, have an, have an unchanging grip on, on the unchanging life of Jesus that is within you. I don't know if you've seen one of these tourist cable cars. You know, there is a rope that is tied between, between two points. And then there is um, a dangling one that has the cable car in it or the cable slide or whatever it is. And your ability to be to be taken across the bridge or across the gap from one point to another lies in your ability to hold on to the cable. Just hold it on and it will just roll you across to the next place. That's the imagery that Paul has here. He says, I want you to stand fast. If you don't stand fast, there is the possibility that Satan would, would, would cheat you of your reward. And that's his concern for this church because he's saying that these people have labored with me in verse three, right? It means that there was a time when their fellowship was vital, was, was, was sincere, was alive. They have labored and 
there is a danger here. There's a possibility that if they don't persevere, they might not enjoy the benefits of that labor. They might not enjoy the reward of that labor. What's at stake here is not necessarily salvation, but the topic of reward. Um, and so Paul says, persevere. And if you followed us through our study of the New Testament of Paul's letters so far, you'll find out that the themes are the same, pretty much. When we get to the final chapters of the book, Paul begins to show us how to navigate from heavenly realities to an earthly experience of those realities. And then he begins to say, you must hold on. The last book we studied, or one of the last books we studied was the book of Galatians, where he says in chapter six, don't be tired of well-doing, you know, because it's very possible that you become tired of it, but don't become weary, don't become bored, don't become discouraged in well-doing. And then he talks about two sisters here that Stephanie hinted at earlier. I implore Odia and I implore Sintech to be of the same mind in the Lord. So you can see that um, Paul was concerned and this has been hinted at throughout the, throughout the book. In fact, many theologians believe that it's because of these two women that Paul actually wrote this letter. They were influential enough in the church and whatever issue they were having was threatening enough to the church that um, Paul had to write to them. And before he got to chapter four, where he implores them, you know, to, to be of the same mind in the Lord, he has already told them about the mind of Christ, right? That's that mind that is willing to lose even when it is right and to give up itself. He has told them about the spiritual mind in chapter three, the mind that has a different weighing and evaluating system to evaluate the things of the world and put them into right perspective. And with that backdrop already set, he wants them to, to use that framework to think of their very practical disagreement. And we don't know what <laughs> the disagreement was. I don't know. Maybe I can open it up for you to say if someone knows, please let me know um, if you have an idea what this is. But very creative theologians over, over the years have discovered that <laughs> um, the first woman's name reads like the English word odious. I don't know if you know this English word, odious, but odious means to be loud and to talk too much, right? And then the second woman's name uh, reads a lot like soon touchy, you know? So <laughs> soon touchy means to be highly emotionally sensitive to words. So <laughs> when, when, when odious and soon touchy come in, come in contact, it's not a very good, it's not a very good mix to put it very, very loudly because there's someone who is very outgoing, who wants to talk, and there's another person who easily gets upset um, and maybe is not as expressive. But this is just one example. It shows you, um, it shows you the practical realities of um, coming together as a church community. And it says, I implore them to be of the same mind in the Lord because their disunity can threaten all the labor that they have put in. And Paul is going to show us, and he has already shown us, as it were, in this, in this, in the previous chapters, what it takes, you know, to let go of this kind of, of this kind of, um, to let go of this kind of disunity, of this kind of disagreement, or whatever it is that created the situation. But in chapter four and in the next verses, he's going to kind of put those ideas together and summarize how he expects that this church can stay above disturbance um, and above the disunity that threatens them. And the beautiful thing about Philippians is that Paul is not writing a theological piece. I think 
we have said this before that most of the letters we've read, not most, all of the letters we read, um, Romans, Galatians, Colossians, they are theological pieces. And the reason they are theological pieces is that Paul was writing them to address doctrinal issues in the church that was threatening, that was threatening the purity of the gospel in those churches. But there's no doctrinal issue to be addressed primarily in Philippians. So Paul is not writing theologically. He's, he's, he's writing from his own experience. So you can trust that this is not just a good idea that he's telling you. This is, the, this is how a man who was in prison was able to navigate that season of his life. And like we know from history, um, he actually came out of prison and he, was, he eventually was not executed. So that's something to keep in mind as you read the next few chapters, um, the next few verses of this um, chapter. Any thoughts to that? Any, any contributions before we move on? Um, Clement also was in there. You didn't mention Clement. How come you just mentioned so touchy and the other lady? <laughs> well, they were, they were the ones who were in direct conflict with each other. Um, and then in, in verse 3, Paul is saying, I, I want you to help these women and then including Clement. So for these women, the kind of help they needed was to basically put, put aside their differences. We don't know exactly what help Clement needed. Um, but yeah, that's like, we just leave it at that, right? Paul is saying to, to many people think he's writing to Epaphroditus, who is the one who actually delivered this letter and who was an elder in that church to, um, to help these women. And of, of course, the way the letter begins is by Paul um, addressing the letter to the bishops and to the deacons. So he was addressing the letter to the, to the functionaries in the church that had the capacity to, to look into the issues that the church was going through. Well, it's important to highlight what, how Paul concludes here, that their names are in the book of life, right? So um, the fact that they're having a difficult moment, right? And that they are sincerely disagreeing with each other like we have seen, it's not putting their salvation in question. And the moment we if, we, if we build on that foundation that we share the same life and someone's weakness does not by itself disqualify them, that enables us to begin to work out our differences um, because the foundation of our lives has already been secured by the work of Christ on the cross, okay? So you can read Stephanie from verse okay. four. Verse seven. Okay, first four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you. So verse 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always, right? And again, I will say rejoice. And the question here is, how is it possible to rejoice in the Lord always, right? Whenever the scripture says this, because of course, this is not the only verse and this is not the only book in scripture that, that, that implores us to rejoice in the Lord always. Um, a lot of people feel like, like, Sometimes Christ, um, Christians can be quite self self delusional in a sense, you know, quite um, 
I don't know if opaque is the right word, but you know, quite insensitive to to even their own circumstances and the circumstances of those around them. And so perhaps verses like this are an encouragement to ignore your current situation and just live a happy life in spite of it. But the question then is, is the Bible inviting us to, to self-delusion? Or is Paul speaking about an organic experience, right? And if he is speaking about an organic experience and not about self-delusion, um, then how is it possible to rejoice in the Lord always? You can also answer why is it possible or how is it possible to rejoice in the Lord always? Do you always feel like rejoicing in the Lord? Or do you sometimes feel like crying in the Lord? <laughs> or do you sometimes feel frustrated in the Lord? I feel like rejoicing, but not always, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And and if it's like always like, just like, you know, I'm in church, you hear people say, ah, oh, yes, it happened, but rejoice. The Bible says rejoice. And I'm like, get out, you know? And every time it's like, they just use this verse to make it look like you have no faith. It's more like a weapon as far as I'm concerned, sometimes amongst church folks. Mm -hmm. but. And, and, you know, it's like, just go to church with a, a smile plastered on your face. Just be fake. That's the way I, I used to see it. But I guess there's that possibility of you actually being joyful in the Lord always because, you know, mm -hmm. he would answer so, prayers, you know. So, Stephanie, has, yeah. it happened, has it happened to you that you found yourself rejoicing in the midst of contradictory circumstances not because someone um beat you to rejoice like um forced you to rejoice or someone tried to cheer you up but you just found that if i'm to be genuine to myself what is inside my heart despite the environment is joy yeah. have you had that experience before i have funny enough i have in fact last, that was just like last week and i i, I heard a certain news and i was so down and then a verse came to my spirit, in my heart, it, that part that says he's the God of all consolation. Mm -hmm. And so I, I prayed and I think the prayer just lasted about five minutes. And it was as if, if I, I just found myself dancing, you know, <laughs> five minutes later. And I was like, what was that? Why was I feeling down just five minutes ago? And now I called my sister and I was like, you don't believe what just happened to me. I just prayed this verse that you are the God of all consolation, console me right now. And suddenly I'm happy again. And still now I can't even understand why I was feeling down in the first place. So yeah. Yeah, yeah thank you. Anyone wants to add to that? Okay. Yeah, thank you, Stephanie. So the reason it's possible to rejoice in the Lord always is because um, our mood is not a product of this dimension. Our mood is a product of a different dimension. Our mood is a product of a different reality. So what happened to you when you prayed is that you touched that reality. And like we have seen, um, the world of time, space, and matter is not as real as we like to think it is because like we used the example before, right? That 
that the table that's in front of you right now, if you travel back enough in the past, it doesn't exist, right? And if you travel back enough in the future, sorry, forward enough into the future, thanks to the law of entropy, it will not exist, right? So then how real is the table? <laughs> because it, like the table's existence is, is, is very strictly tied to time, as it were, if the factor of time is withdrawn, then it's not as real as you might imagine. And that's one of the, the understandings that Paul based his estimation of the value of things on. So what happened to you is that you touch the reality of things. So our mood is a product of a higher reality. And this is so, so important because each of us is going to be, each of us is going to goes from this Bible study, goes from our houses to face a real physical, practical world, right? If you finish this Bible study and you turn on the news, I can assure you that um, nine out of the 10 things you read, if not 10 out of 10, it's not cause for rejoicing, right? And it's very possible for the news and the media to begin to frame the way you view the world. But in the book of Hebrews, we see that our worldview is framed by faith. And it's very important for anyone who wants to go to the nations, anyone who wants to um, extend the frontiers of the kingdom of God, that you must go with the worldview of faith. You must see the events of history through the world, through the lenses of faith, because that's what the worldview is. So it's a lens through which you view history and through which you view current activities. You must go in there with the worldview of faith. Um, so you've, you've had this example used multiple times, you know, um, a ship can be in the middle of a violent ocean and not sink as long as none of the water around it gets into it, right? It stays afloat. And so, that's that's what rejoicing does for us, right? It, it helps us stand fast. It's one of the ways that we stand fast until the expectation of our faith is, is better. You know, the Bible says that faith is the is a substance. It means that faith, faith is 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 a reality. Faith means that the thing you're hoping for has been born in the realm of the spirit. But they say, but because of the working of time, you need to exercise the principle right and the protocol of time before you see that which is real come into a physical manifestation time is the determining factor and even god in many of his his, his dealings does not violate the principle of time and so that's why faith is imparted by the holy spirit um, and so it's possible that god has given you a token of victory that even though this thing was supposed to be bad news but when i pressed into god in prayer I felt joy and that joy means that that my family has been delivered from this from this snare my family has been delivered from this curse that joy means whatever it is that you discern the joy to mean that that joy is the seed of it it's, it's a seed of reality and it's supposed to enable you to persevere in fellowship until you see what was better in the spirit take on human form take on fleshly form come into this dimensional, three-dimensional frame of reference. And Paul says, let your gentleness be known to all men because the Lord is at hand. Let your humility be known to all men. So in the midst of, in the face of contradictions, right? In the face of the pride of men, in the face of the complexities of dealing with people and with circumstances, let your gentleness. You have every reason to be gentle because your foundation is not in the visible creation. You are connected to a God <laughs> who can make something out of nothing, right? And by that, I mean that he can, 
He can speak something out in the realm of the spirit and his words can come into the earth and produce things where there was no possibility. The average person does not have that possibility over their lives. Their lives is fully scoped out and determined by how much they can work out. And that's why anxiety becomes the order of the day because if I don't have things under control, then things have, have really gone wrong, right? But, you, but that's not for you. You're, you are connected to a God who can make, who can literally make something out of nothing. So there is no need to resort to fighting, to disunity, um, to, to prideful arrogance, to a desperate desire to, to show off or to show yourself. He says, let your gentleness be known to all men, all men, not just Christians, but all men, because the Lord is at hand. And then we come to the first soundbite verse, probably of, of this chapter, which is be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and, and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And it raises, you know, that same question again. Paul had enough reason to be anxious. Be anxious there simply means do not worry about anything, right? And to be anxious means to be drawn in different directions about something. Um, and like I said just now, Paul had enough reason to, to be anxious, right? This is the church he planted. And this church was being threatened by disagreement between two faithful sisters that if it wasn't stopped in his tracks, he had the potential of breaking up their fellowship and ruining his efforts. That's enough reason to keep any missionary up at night. And then when you take that out of, out of the picture, he was in prison, like we've said, he was facing the possibility of execution if the case went against him. But yet he was unflustered by all of this. And then the question that lies before us is how did he conquer worry, right? Because he says, don't be anxious for anything. And then he tells us how he conquered worry. He says, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So there's no need to ask us what is the secret of Paul's ability to deal with anxiety and to completely overcome it in his life. The answer was that in everything by prayer. But of course, this also makes the situation a bit complex for us as well, because, okay, fine, it's, it's easy that he's saying, right, by prayer. So whenever people have problems, we just throw it at them, go and pray about it, you know? And maybe you, 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 a few situations come to mind that the issue is not that you have not prayed about it, for sure. The issue can be many things else, but the issue is not that you have not prayed about it because you have definitely prayed about it and it appears that, okay, the simplistic solution of prayer by itself is not exactly... <laughs> what's solving my problem, what, what I need, right? So that's why Paul used two different or even three different kinds of words for prayer because he knew that um, life is very complex and the answer to every question is not a simple go and pray. So he says, it's not only prayer you need to do, you also need to do supplication and you need to mix it with thanksgiving. So he says, ensure that you pray. <laughs> After you finish praying, switch into supplication. And then ensure that you sprinkle thanksgiving into all of that. These are three dimensions of prayer that he speaks about, right? And then he tells us in chapter in verse seven the effect of, of that kind of lifestyle. And so to, to see, to, to help us understand this, I would like to ask us, how do you understand the difference, right, between prayer and supplication? When you have a need, 
a pressing need, for example, do you just pray? Or do you switch into supplication? Or do you, is there a difference between them? Or is Paul just repeating prayer twice for the sake of it? You know, what's the difference here? How do you understand the difference between prayer and supplication? I was going to say that um, supplication is uh, in the sense of um, a pressing need. And uh, prayer is, um, I can't find the right words for it, but. Um, um, like, for example, um, the Bible says Paul and Silas, mm -hmm. when they were in prison, they prayed and they gave thanks. They sang hymns. They were not praying to get out of prison. Uh, that would have made this application. Um, that explains why when the prison doors opened, they just sat there waiting for the jailer instead of rush, rushing out. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I think what you're trying to say is that prayer is the basic offering up of our, of our incense to God. It's a basic communion, right? And communication with God. But, but supplication takes it one step further into entreaties. Or like when you wrote in the chat, crying out to God for specific things, right? That's what you're saying. Yes. Okay. Cool. Um, quick. Sorry, Stephanie, your hand is up. No. Uh, yeah. Well, I was just going to say basically the same thing. Prayers like priesthood, showing up, addressing God, while supplication is you entreating and pleading, you know, for your specific need. Okay. Okay. So then someone might be thinking, and maybe let me know if I'm reading someone's thoughts here. So someone can be thinking, is this just a case of semantics then, right? <laughs> are we just dealing with semantics here or are we dealing with something practical? So are we dealing with what you say when you're praying? Is that what the difference between prayer and supplication is or is there a practical active difference between both? Is, that, is anybody thinking that thought? Yes. Okay. I, our answers are in order. I just want to show us the practical side of supplication. And I think this might help us, especially if you have a pressing need that you need an intervention from heaven for. In Psalm chapter 55, verse 16, we don't have the time to lay the context of this scripture, but this was a time when David was surrounded by enemies. And David said, as for me, I will call upon the Lord and the Lord shall save me, right? So this is prayer, I will call upon the Lord. So you can call upon the Lord in the morning time when you wake up. You can call upon him in the evening time before you go to bed, I will pray. But then in verse 17, he switches to supplication. <laughs> After I call upon him, evening and morning and at noon, I will pray and cry aloud. So he begins to show us why eventually God heard his voice. Now, we don't have time to go into the dynamics of why God actually needs us to come to the place of desperation like this for certain things to shift. But we understand 
repeatedly from scripture that this is a principle of God in dealing with his people. So supplication is the persistent entreaty. So you, you can pray for six hours about an issue, but supplication is that <laughs> continuous flow of prayer, right? In the evening, I'm going to, even if it's one minute, I'm going to log it in on this matter. In the morning, I'm going to do the same. In the afternoon, I'm going to do the same. And it's not just that I'm talking to God, I'm, I'm pouring out my heart, I'm crying aloud. So it, it's, a, it's a mixture of the persistence plus the sincerity and the passion of it. And it says that he shall hear my voice. It's very important for us to read Psalms like this because sometimes we read David say things like, many are the afflictions of the righteous and the Lord delivers him out of all of them. And we just quote the Psalm and maybe pray once about it and think that this is how the Lord delivered him from many afflictions. But he says evening, morning and at noon. And he's not just saying 6 a.m., 12 p.m., 6 p.m. He's saying that it's, I'm, I'm releasing prayers. And so you can come into a season of intense temptation and your supplication to God throughout that season, whether you are in the marketplace or you are driving or you are in the house, your supplication is help me, Holy Spirit. And, and it rises the whole day. Of course, you still have your prayer time when you pray, but as you face the day and you face that temptation, help me, Holy Spirit, help me. Does that make sense to us? Stephanie, your hand is up. Oh, I don't think it's up anymore. I mean, you answered the question. Well, I was thinking about this crying aspect because I've heard a lot of people say, God is not moved by your tears. You know, he doesn't really care if you cry or not. But, you know, David did say that, you know, he, he could cry out to God, you know. And, I mean, that, that phrase, you know, used to confuse me. Like, he doesn't really care about your tears. Just pray, just pray, you know. Does the, does the quote have a scripture backing? Beku is laughing. <laughs> oh, no, I've just heard it amongst, you know, this very tough, holy years people. It's not by tears. He's not moved. Just, you know, I don't know, man. I've heard it several times, sorry. May I, may I say something? Yes. Yeah, yeah quick. Um, Sammy, welcome. Thank you. Sorry, I came late. Uh, the thing about the idea behind most of these men, the times I've heard them say, God is not moved by your crying. What they are addressing, they are not against the pouring out of your hearts in sincerity to God. What they are against or what they are speaking against is the fact when people approach God from an emotional um, perspective, emotionally, you know this thing where people kind of try to gaslight somebody with emotions, right? Mm -hmm. in, in our day-to-day -day life, we, um, people tend to do it. For example, you know this thing when a child wants to come and ask you for something and the child feels the surest way to get it from mommy is to try to put in some emotion and act all childy to see whether I can get mommy's sympathy. So yeah. when those men are saying those things, they're actually saying that people, any, every interaction you have with the Lord must be from the place of faith and dependence. I don't know how to say this, 
um, I, I, I don't know if I'm communicating it clearly because there are instances when people want to ask something from the Lord. You know, when, when we want to make some requests from the Lord and we are not even doing it out of faith. Sometimes we are just doing it out of plain emotions. So the idea is, even if you have to pour your heart onto the Lord, you're, 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 even if you have to cry in desperation, in the midst of that desperation, there should be the faith of knowing that this is who I am crying out to, and he is willing. He is, you, I don't know if this is making sense. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, definitely, Sammy. And I think just to summarize the point that you have made, um, one important factor that separates prayer from supplication is the knowledge of the will of God, right? And that's what differentiates the crying in itself. So is this crying based on the will of God or is it just based on selfish ambition or just my exactly my exactly. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Where is that Psalm? Psalm 55. So look at what happened in this Psalm. David pressed into God and he says, as for me, I will call upon the Lord and the Lord shall save me. So it was the will of God for him to be delivered from that situation, right? This is the foundation. So when he picked, and this is what supplication is about. For, for the person who is supplicating, the person is receiving feedback and, and um, <laughs> merging their follow-up prayers with that feedback. That's what the Bible means by watch and pray. So he's watching and he's adjusting his prayer based on the feedback that he gets from heaven. That's what um, Elijah was doing when he was trying to restore rain upon Israel. He was watching and then based on the feedback he saw or didn't see, he adjusted his prayer focus, right? And so he says, I will call on him and he shall save me. So he discerned that, okay, this sickness is not supposed to kill me. It's not the will of God for my life, right? It's just that, I, for example, I heard of someone recently, an elderly minister who was diagnosed of cancer, but it so happened to be that just a few years ago, another older minister prophesied to this elder minister that God has blessed him with long life. So in that kind of case, there is a valid ground for supplication. There's a valid ground for crying out to the Lord because the will of God has been discerned. You know, um, so this is how to understand. I don't want to suppress it too, too much because... It's not the main focus of Philippians 4. <laughs> I know that it would be nice to press it a bit, but I hope from what Samia said and from this clarification, is it clear the difference between supplication and prayer? Yes, thank you, Sammy. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Paul is saying, I'm, 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 I'm pleading with you that, you know, Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, verse 6 rather, I'm pleading with you that instead of anxiety, pray. And just in case you tell me you've prayed, move to the next level to supplication and then sprinkle it with thanksgiving. He says, and as you, as you create this mixture of incense, prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, there's going to be a feedback. And that feedback is what he calls the peace of God, which passes all understanding. He will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Now it's necessary for us to break down um, this, this feedback, right? Because Paul is saying that the effect of this kind of life of prayer. So he's not saying to you that if you start supplicating, suddenly the thing will change. And this is why you need the peace of God because 
if the thing was going to change quickly, remember that we exist in time, this frame of reference. So things that are born in eternity often need time to find manifestation. And so the thing that bridges the gap between faith and expectation is the, is the peace of God. So anyone who engages in a life of prayer, <laughs> the person is going to know the peace of God. So you, you, you might um, have a vision or an inclination that hmm, somebody's about to die. And then you begin to engage in prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. You see, in a sense, it doesn't necessarily matter how that situation ends because like, you know, you can only make prayers. You cannot answer prayers. But one thing you are guaranteed is that regardless of how the situation ends up, the peace of God. And that's why Paul says that it passes understanding. So I want us to just see a few things about the peace of God because a lot of people keep saying I have peace. So it's important to see some things about the peace of God. So first of all, the peace of God is different from peace with God. It has nothing to do with salvation. A lot of times when people say they have peace, <laughs> what they mean is peace with God, not the peace of God. I don't know, when we did Romans, you must remember Romans chapter 5, verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. You see, someone may be in disobedience, but still go to church and have a wonderful experience. But they re And then when you ask the person about it, the person says, I have peace, right? The person has peace with God because of the basis of justification, because of the basis of the work of Jesus. But the peace of God is a garrison, it's a, it's a, it's a rear guard, it's like a rear guard of soldiers. So it's just like at the end of World War II, right? Germany um, had peace with the United Kingdom, Russia, and America. They had peace with them. It means that um, okay, we're no longer fighting. We're no longer going to bomb each other. So there is there is a truce, but it it didn't translate to the fact that in Germany they had the peace of America, right? The peace of America was is a product of the prosperity of America. It's a product of the military might of America. <laughs> That's not. It's only now that Germany is beginning to experience that same kind of peace, right? So if America's um, commits itself and say, okay, we're going to give you X number of troops. We're going to build X number of nuclear, nuclear facilities. We're going to invest X amount in your economy to boost it up. That's when there's a possibility of Germany experiencing the peace of America. And so that's the first thing to note here that it is called the peace of God, right? And then the second thing to note is that it passes understanding. It means that it doesn't always correspond to the environment. It means that if you try to discern it from the environment, you may not be able to do so. The only place to pick it up from is in the spirit. So if somebody likes what they are doing, you know, or fully, fully appreciates and loves and is in love with their disobedience, then they don't need the peace of God to verify that action. Without the peace of God, they're happy with it. But oftentimes the peace of God will come to confirm places where there's, where there's confusion, confirm places where there's darkness. So after you pray, things may appear the same way they are temporary, but the peace of God, it transcends the testimony of time, transcends the testimony of space and of matter. And thirdly, God's peace comes to guard his will. You know? So the test so when you understand what the peace of God is, 
then that becomes a test for knowing whether you are in the will of God, right? Because the reason why God releases peace into your heart is because the thing that he's nudging you towards is his will. And a lot of times, nothing in the environment will make sense. The advice from people in the environment might be contradictory, but the peace of God is what keeps you grounded, grounded in the will of God. You know, everybody might tell you, don't go in this direction, but, you, but the peace of God. Every time you, you, you bring prayer with supplication and thanksgiving, the peace of God. And so you know that this place may look like the lion's den, but the peace of God. It passes all understanding. Right. And Paul says that the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind. Right. Because one of the enemies of one of the enemies of joy, right? And one of the enemies of unity and the way anxiety comes into our hearts, right, is through wrong feeling, which is propagated through the heart, right? And wrong thinking, which is propagated through the mind. He says that's what the peace of God comes to do. So just in case you find yourself a victim of wrong feeling or wrong thinking. <laughs> the solution, friends, is, is prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And the peace of God will take over. Okay? Can we read verse 8 to 9? And see the next step from right brain, okay? Okay, 8 to 9. Finally, brethren, whether things are true, sorry, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, Whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is any praiseworthy, anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you have which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Yeah, thank you. So I, I don't know if you notice the dichotomy that's going on here, right? So first of all, Paul has told you that you need to pray. And I think all of us Pentecostal and charismatic Christians don't find it hard to understand. If, even if we need to do vigils, right? We need to do it. But this is not enough for you to live right, actually. Especially if you have engaged in prayer for a long time. You realize that what prayer does is that it makes resources available spiritual resources such as power, such as wisdom. He makes it available actually at your disposal if you pray long enough. And even if you pray short enough, you find out that power and wisdom is at your disposal. Um, but the thing is at some point you're going to stop praying. And so what are you supposed to do in order to um, bring, bring about the realization of the things that you have received in prayer? You have to, you have to change the way you think essentially. So, so the formula for living right is not just praying right. It's not just supplication and say, God, help me. But you have to begin to redeem your thoughts, redeem your thinking. And friends, sometimes in the, in the heat of the moment, the, the only defense that you have against the enemy is not your prayer, it's your thinking, right? And we're not going to explore this entire list. I'm going to encourage you to take time and just read each part of this list by yourself. But if you remember, I said to us that when you come into, into the New Testament and you read a list of virtues like this, it can be a bit overwhelming to keep track of them. But one secret I found that appears to work for all the lists that we have come in contact with so far is that usually the first item on the list is an indication of the entry point to all the others. If you can figure out and get the 
first item right, you'll be fine with all the others. And Paul says, whatever things are true, whatever things are true, whatever things are true, right? Um, if you think about most of the things that we worry about, even scientifically, it has been proven that about 92% of the things people worry about <laughs> don't actually end up happening because they are just too far-fetched. I mean, think of your think of your greatest worry right now or your greatest anxiety. It's very likely that it's not founded in fact. It's, it's just founded in fear. It's likely not to happen. I mean, maybe 8% of, of those worries would actually materialize, but the rest, you know, usually don't, right? And then it, it gives you an indication of who's responsible for anxiety. It's who Jesus calls the father of lies. And so the enemy's weapon against you is lies. He's going to first try to break through your armory with lies before he can defeat you. You must have heard it said before that um, you have to be defeated in your mind first before you're defeated on the ground. If he can convince you that your life is good for nothing, then he can eventually make you commit suicide, for example. Or he doesn't even need to make you commit suicide. He can even kill you if, he, if he's able to sufficiently convince you that your life is worthless and then submit to you the fear of death. Then it gives him the entry point he needs to manipulate your situations. And so the antidote to the assault of the enemy is truth. And what is truth? You know, how do you, how do you know what, what is true? You know, in, in our day, we have the concept of, of the relativity of truth, right? Especially in, the, in, in American culture, we have the concept of my truth and your truth. You know, truth is no longer seen as a fixed star but it's rather seen as a relative pendulum <laughs> that depends on lived experiences. And so if, if truth is not a fixed star, but a relative pendulum, how do we then discern what is true? Any thoughts? What is truth? You know, that's, this is Pilate's question to Jesus that, <laughs> that made Pilate unable to sleep. Jesus told him, I've come to be a witness to the truth. And Pilate said, oh, what is truth? But basically, if I come to, if I come to, and if I come to your classroom, for example, right? Or not even classroom, if I come to, if we stand outside somewhere on the, on the field, and then I write the number six on the, on the floor, and then you stand and say, from my perspective, this is six, right? And then someone else stands at the top of it and says, no, from my perspective, this is nine not six. How do we know which one is true? Oye? Okay, so I had wanted to answer biblically, but you brought in a scenario, so I lowered down my hand. Okay. Um, truth. So truth can be from different perspectives, depending on where you're looking at it from. This is from a, a human, while well, thinking logically and answering logically. So in which case, it's always better to have a third person that looks at both scenarios to help discern what truth is. Truth biblically, um, what came to mind? I think that's in John. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No mm -hmm. one cometh to the Father except through me. That's my answer. Okay. Yeah, you came close. Your, your first part of the answer still took us towards the relativism. But your second part took us closer to the answer, which is that truth means the ultimate reality, you know, the ultimate nature of things, right? 
and we have the benefit of scripture that informs us that that one of the names that the, that the spirit of God bears is the spirit of truth. So truth is, is anything that is a product of the witness of the spirit of truth. That's what truth is, it's the ultimate reality. And if, if God is the ultimate reality, then truth is a testimony of God about an issue. It's not my feelings, it's not my intelligence. It's, it's beyond that, it's the testimony of God. So if you want to know if what was written on the floor is six or nine, you need to ask the person who wrote it, what did he write? You know, that's, that's the perspective of truth. Um, Stephanie, do you want to add something here? Your hand is up. You already said it, Josh. Thank you. Okay. And so Paul says that I know that your circumstances may not always look like it. One of the things I've observed here in Germany lately is that amongst Christians, not lately, it's been a problem here for a long time. A lot of people in this culture, understandably, are debating some of the laws of God, right? Why does he ask us to stay away from sex before marriage, for example? It doesn't seem harmful to me if both people are reasonable. That's a lot of people's thoughts. It appears as though <laughs> the, love of, uh, the laws of God are quite restrictive in their, in their nature. It doesn't, there doesn't seem to be something practically wrong if two people love each other. You know, why do they need the paperwork of marriage? We're not going to press those topics tonight. But we're just going to say that Paul is aware that your reasoning, your circumstances may defy the truth, right? Because you might lie down on your bed and a wave of temptation will come over your soul. And you might be asking yourself, why don't I just indulge in this thing? You know, like, what is wrong with it? In that moment, you need a, you need a witness of a higher court. You need a witness of the spirit of truth. And he says that this is what you think on. Don't become a victim of your thoughts, but rather direct your thoughts. Friends, if we don't learn to think right, we're never going to live right. No matter how much we pray right, because Paul is, is basically um, drawing out the permutation for righteous living, right? He's saying that Christ is coming soon, so I want you to be gentle. And I also want you to guard your hearts through prayer. And then after you guard your hearts, also protect your mind. You know, change the way you think. Think about people in an honorable manner. If you think about people in an honorable manner, then you will not debate certain things that people debate around, for example, sexual lust in your mind, right? Because you are going to discover that it is, it is neither noble, nor just, nor pure, nor lovely, nor of good report. It has no virtue and it is not praiseworthy, right? So this is a foundation, friends. Whatsoever things are true, your like your body might be sick, but keep your focus on the things that are true. That's how the breakthrough will come. And then he says, the things that you learned and received and heard of and saw in me, these things do. And the God of peace. Now, we, we, at first, we saw the peace of God. So we have seen different levels of peace, right? First of all, you have peace with God through justification, which is a free gift. Then you have the peace of God through alignment in prayer and supplication. And then through obedience, you have the God of peace now attaches himself to you. And, and this is where Paul talks in Romans chapter eight that in all things, God works together for good <laughs> for those who love him. A time comes when you commit yourself to the laws of God that the God of peace himself attaches himself to your circumstances in a way that ensures that the worst thing that happens to you turns out for your good. 
This is the story of Joseph, that you meant it for evil, but the God of peace was attached to me. I thank God that we can have peace with him. And I thank God that we can have the peace of God. But when I step out of my house, I also want to walk with the God of peace. And, and, the, and the way into this experience is right praying, right thinking, and right living. Okay? So the final part of this is Paul commending the generosity of the Philippians. There are some sound bites in this part of scripture. So let's read through it. Verse 10 to verse 20. To verse 20, Stephanie. Okay, verse 10 to 20. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things you sent, the things sent from you, a sweet smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Stephanie. And so just to run through these closing parts of Philippians, we see here that a man who is in prison and who probably has no money, is, he has a tone of sufficiency towards him, right? Um, he's saying that I have all things. He's saying, I'm really grateful that you guys are the only church that supported me, but I'm not really saying that I need your support. In fact, the reason why I'm praising you is because I want you to do it for your own good. Of course, he was not being boastful here. He was just showing them a reality of contentment that God had brought them into, right? And we have seen or oh, what this block of verses shows. One of the first things they show us is that um, without contentment, we're going to lose our joy very quickly because we saw in chapter three that, that, the, that things are one of the, the thieves of joy, right? How much we have or how much we do not have, right? Um, Jesus said that beware of covetousness. A man's life, the value, the worth, the estimation of a man's life is not in the abundance of his possession, right? And so we see that one of the reasons why Paul was able to continually rejoice was that he was content. What I want you to notice in verse 11 is that he says that I learned it. <laughs> I learned, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. So it's not that he was born with contentment or he was such a great theologian, you know, and then he figured out the, um, 
the theology of contentment. No, he says, I learned it. You know, Jesus says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And that indicates to us how learning happens, right? Learning happens when Jesus gives us a yoke. And then the yoke becomes the opportunity to learn. So that's why Paul says, when you pray with supplication and thanksgiving, it's not necessarily the answer that might come, but you can be guaranteed that you have the peace of God because many times you can pray with supplication and thanksgiving, pray with supplication and thanksgiving on repeat. And then you discover through that process that God will have you walk through this season of, of maybe lack, for example. And what God wants to, God doesn't want you to suffer. Well, he wants you to arrive at the place where Paul was, where material possessions will not be a threat to your faith because he says, I have learned. So the only reason this learning was able to happen is that he was able to take on the yoke of Christ. And so each of us should trust God to help us discern our seasons, right? To, um, to know that, okay, God, I'm in this season and I'm not in this season because you're unfaithful. I'm actually in this season because you are faithful. So what is your plan for this season? And to learn what God is teaching in that season, because I can assure you that season will not last forever. Look at verse 12. He says, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Now, I know that there's no need for us to press. I know how to be abased because all of us here know how to be abased, right? Um, yeah, we all know how to be abased. But as I was praying and preparing for this, for this study, I felt very strongly in my heart that one of the things God will have us learn in this season is how to abound. I could see in the spirit that God is bringing promotions, financial increase, and just capacity increase, increase in authority and responsibility to us as individuals and as a people. And friends, I can tell you that prosperity is as much a test as poverty is, right? And so I want you to, 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 to press into this prayer burden and say, Lord, teach me how to abound, like, when you begin to bring increase into my life, let nothing be too big for me to receive, too big for me to relate to, too big for me to handle, too big that it destroys me. But teach me how to abound because Paul says <laughs> that it is land, right? And the secret of contentment, like we saw, I think two years ago when we did the enlargement, that the secret of stepping into an enlargement with God is learning how to receive all things, right? A lot of times, the hyper-positivity, prosperity gospel only trains us to receive good things in, in a sense, you know? And so when anything that doesn't appear to be on the faith lane, <laughs> as it were, happens around us, we begin to question our faith, question our prayer life, even when those things are not at fault. Of course, many times those things could be at fault, um, but Paul says that I have an orientation, that I have a heart that can face anything. Of course, I don't pray for anything. I pray for good things. But on my path with God, I recognize that sometimes I might be put in, in, in tough places. But there is something to learn in those situations. Because God is faithful that I'm not going to remain there forever. I mean, look at the things the apostle had to go through. This is not a comprehensive list. When we study Corinthians, we'll, Second Corinthians, we'll say comprehensive list. But he says, I know how to be hungry. This is not fasting. This is no money. You know, he says, and I know how to abound and how to suffer need. And then the question is, how was he able to go through this contradiction? And I think this is the heart of the letter. And it's good that we're coming to a close at this point. This is the heart of the entire letter. 
This is the heart of everything Paul has been trying to pass along to this church. He's been trying to show them the reality of a partnership. He says, I can do all things <laughs> through Christ who strengthens me. You know, again, this is one scripture that's been quoted and taken out of his context, his context to imply that you can, you can do everything. You can fly an airplane if you never got training. But the context of this scripture is that Paul is talking about financial matters, right? He says, he says I went through financial straits, times when there was nothing, and I didn't lose my testimony. I continued on the path that God called me to continue. I went through a, a church planting phase where there, was, where, where there was nobody coming, and I didn't close down. I persevered. And then he said, I also went through a phase where I had all the money I wanted, and it didn't change my message. It didn't change my motivation. He's talking about financial situations here. He's talking about um, tough and easy situations, which all of us face. God can put you in a team that is doing great, and you begin to wonder, I'm just waiting for something to go wrong because things are going too well. No, that's abounding and, and it's important that you manage that properly. But also you can find yourself in a situation where things are not going so well. But you see, none of those two matter because there is, there is the unending resource of Christ in him. He says, I can do all things. Friends, it's important for us to realize when we look at the natural world, right, the physical creation, that this principle is hidden in the physical creation. Um, most of what we call nature takes its root, right, from things that are invisible, from things that are unseen. Right? If, we, if we look at all the trees, how do they survive? How do they live? Where do they draw their nutrients from? The most important aspect of a tree is its roots that go deep into the earth. It is, it is there that it draws its minerals and its waters from, right? And that means that the most important part of a tree is the part that you cannot see, the root system. So you may be seeing the tree sprouting up, growing up, um, but its real secret goes deep within. And I don't know what Jesus has called you, what situation that he has called you to walk through in this season, right? Like part of why he allows us to go through those seasons is that he wants to retain the glory for everything that he performs. He wants to bring us to the place where when we look at the situation, we know that, okay, I cannot do it. And then we turn to him. When our strength fails, it's not time to run away from him. It's time to go to him. When our peace fails, it's not time to run away from him. It's time to go to him. And even before everything fails, when everything is going well, it's also time to run to him, friends. He's our peace. He's our everything. He's the energy. There's a partnership with him that can ensure joy. Just in case you've come to a place where it's as though the waters are bitter. The answer is fellowship. Persevere in fellowship. Go back to fellowship. And you'll notice that the source of strength will begin to arise. David says in Psalm 126, that I will look up to the hills, the mountains, from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and earth. And you can also add that, who made the mountain. So when you look at the mountains, how strong and how movable they are, you remember that there's a God who created the mountains and he who made them strong can also make you strong. Paul says, I can do all things because I know how to plug into the life of Christ that is within me. And for the Philippians here, some, some things I just want us to see quickly as we close is that Paul tells them that their giving, right, is a kind of investment. 
He says in verse 17 that, not that I seek the gift. So, of course, without you, God will still supply my needs. But I, I would like you to give to me because there's, there's going to be a fruit that will abound on your account, on the account of your giving. And it shows us how. He says, because God sees every act of giving as sacrifice. He says, indeed, I have all and abound. I'm full, having received from Epaphroditus the things you sent. And he calls them a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to the Lord. So if you remember First Peter chapter 2, verse 5, right? That um, we also, as lively stones, are built up into a spiritual house, right? To offer up spiritual sacrifices. That's the, that's the blessing of our priesthood, that the things that we do that are sacrificial can provoke a response from heaven. And that's what your giving can do for you. And that's why Paul was excited for this church to give. So part of the investment you need to do into a situation is prayer. Another part of the investment you need to do into a situation is giving. There are some people that I really wanted God to open doors for them. And I knew that the only way God is going to open doors for them is if I give a sacrificial gift into their lives, because he's going to create a sort of platform for them to become from like for more doors to open to them. And I've seen it work out in many people's lives. So you see that is the, it's on the basis of their investment. It's on the basis of their sacrifice that Paul now tells us the final sound bite that we often pick out of context in Philippians chapter four, that my God, it's not often that you read, <laughs> it's not often that you read in the New Testament that Paul personalizes his God like this. It's not very often, but in the matter of the supply of the spirit, he says, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. Notice that he doesn't supply all your wants or all your greed, but he supplies all your need. So that the one who continually pours out will never lack anything. And like we saw in chapter two, all of it is to the glory of God forever and ever. And he concludes by saying, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who have Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.